why is why is this text in our Bible? This is a shameful sin that we read about. Just uh, sickening. Sickening when we read it. You can feel that. And oh, that we would feel that sickened by our own sin. As sickened by our own sin as we do with the sin of others. I was on vacation with my family this week and could not bring myself to study this text because of what was in it. So I ruined my Saturday yesterday preparing for this sermon. These are the last words that we're going to hear about Lot. The last words. Uh, we get some commentary in the New Testament where in Second Peter 2.7, Peter calls him Righteous Lot. That's his nickname. Righteous Lot, ironically. Um, a lot of commentators and preachers have called or have said about Genesis chapter 19, the text I preached on last week, verses 1 through 29 and verses 30 through 38, they've called it unpreachable. Unpreachable. Uh, to preach Genesis chapter 19... Uh, the explanations that need to be given uh, are improper in the setting of public worship. So I did a few weeks back wrestle with that, hearing that, uh, that opinion. Uh, because the church is the family of God. And so we have children that are present. And we're not talking about child subjects. We're talking about serious facts of, of life. And so the challenge is to speak honestly about these things and to speak frankly about these things and to make sure we understand what God's Word is saying, to do that in a way that is helpful and to do that in a way that honors God because it's not an option to skip it. We've got to preach it. We've got to preach it. Um, Paul, when he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, he said, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So you can put in, in parentheses, after all Scripture, Genesis 19, right? including Genesis 19. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is from God. It means that this is not... Uh, accidental. It means that this is not arbitrary. It means that the book wasn't done and God's like, oh, you know, that slipped through. I didn't mean to inspire that. It's, it's here. And it's useful. It means that everything in the Bible is for our edification. So everything in the Bible is for our good. So we've got to read Genesis 19 and ask the question, why in the world is this in the Bible? And God, what, what do you have for us to learn in this text? Well, it is certainly here. Genesis 19 is certainly here for at least dads and daughters. It's at least here for dads and daughters. Dads, do you know that your daughters need the Lord? Do you know that your daughters need the Lord? Daddies, do you know that your daughters need daddies? And that their daddies mustn't be like Lot. But daughters need dads who will meet every single one of their physical and emotional needs. 
who will take it upon themselves to, to, to be responsible for their children and to be responsible in a very special way for their daughters in a sacrificial way. Men are called by God in the home to take sacrificial responsibility. That means that there's a willingness and an eagerness to lay down our lives. This is what a godly man does. A godly man is like Jesus in that he lays down his life for his family. And so a good husband, a good father will will take sacrificial responsibility. He will lay down his life for his family and his wife will know this and his sons will know this and his daughters will know this. And if he has daughters, he won't be like Lot. He will meet all of the physical needs his daughter has and all of the emotional needs his daughter has because he knows that if her physical needs are not met and her emotional needs are not met, that she will get those met somewhere. She will look for those needs to be met. And if it's not from dad, it will be from the next guy to come along. So dad's got to take responsibility. Say, God, thank you for giving me a daughter. God recently gave me a daughter. God, thank you for giving me a daughter. I know it is my job and my responsibility to meet this girl's needs and to raise her in such a way, in such a way that she knows that daddy is here to take care of you, to meet those needs, but the daddy cannot meet your spiritual needs. Only God can. And so the most important thing I do is to lead you to the Lord. Amen. To lead you to Jesus. Because I can't reconcile you to God. I can't atone for your sins. I can't regenerate you. I can't soften your heart. I can't lift the veil. I can't make you see. I can't make you hear. This is the work that God has to do. So what do I need to do as a father? Fathers, we need to lead our children. We need to lead our daughters to the Lord. It means also that we, as Lot did not, but that we recognize that while there are general principles that we apply to both boys and girls as we raise them up to know and love the Lord, we also recognize that there are particular ways that we will raise sons and there are particular ways that we will raise daughters because boys and girls are different. Sons and daughters are different. This is very clear to me now. I have had four boys and now we have this girl that has been in our home for a year and a half now, over a year and a half, and there is a big, big difference between them. My daughter doesn't want to leave her crib without clothes and accessories. Right before she, she wants to be dressed and put together and looking cute before you even take her out of the room. And if you try to take her out of the room without putting a bow on her head, she calls you on it. My wife has bows that she has bought for this little girl. There's like over a hundred bows in her room and they're hanging all over the wall. And if you try to take little Avery out of that room, Without putting a bow on her head, she looks at you and she points at the wall and she says, bow. Why? She wants to accessorize, right? She looks for a little purse, a dolly. She gets all that. And she needs that before she leaves the room. My boys come out in their underwear. They don't put clothes on unless you tell them, you know, you need to put clothes on. Like getting in the car to go somewhere. Like, you know, you should put some pants on. This isn't going to work. My boys don't. They're not concerned with, with showering. They're not concerned with being clean. We have to repeatedly tell them where the shower is. They don't even know where to find it. And Avery, she's got to be clean. She's always wiping herself and wiping her arms and, and cleaning off her face. 
she's at home and she's pushing around little baby strollers with babies in them. And my kids are outside whacking a tree with a sword. <laughs> I couldn't have scripted it better. I don't know if you saw it. I'm up here worshiping this morning. And after the first song or something, my little four-year-old walks up, Blaze. And I, he just comes up and I go to put my hand behind him and I feel something like behind his head. And I look, he's, he's got a sword <laughs> right here this morning. He came armed. <laughs> you never know. Someone's going to try to mess with his sister. He's ready. He's ready. Okay, boys and girls are different. And men are called to lead and to love their families. And we will read today about the disaster that is Lot's family. It's an absolute tragedy. We will read about the disaster that is Lot's family. And I'm sure that Lot never would have predicted that his life was going to go like this. I'm sure as Lot looked at his two baby girls that he never would have predicted that this was going to be the, the end of his life with his girls. He never would have, would have predicted that his life, that his relationship with his girls was going to go this way. And yet this is where he is. And one of the things that Genesis 19 is meant to do is to awaken Awaken men who say they love God to be to be godly men and to be godly husbands and to be godly fathers, lest you end up like Lot, lest your family ends up like Lot's family. So this text is here at least for for dads who have daughters, but it's here for the rest of us as well. It's here for the rest of us who have a propensity to take sin way too lightly. We take sin too lightly. We don't deal with our sin the way that we should. We marginalize it. We forget about it. We sweep it under the carpet. We minimize it. We make excuses. We compare ourselves to others. We have all kinds of tactic that we use to keep us from dealing with sin, with admitting sin and confessing sin and talking about sin and fighting sin and repenting from sin. We must do this. And so Scripture will have these stories that will sicken us and, and, and teach us that the, 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 the trajectory of sin is down. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And we have this notion that, that if I don't deal with my sin, it doesn't get worse. It just sort of plateaus and it stays the same. And Genesis 19 is here for one to remind us that that is not true. That is not true. The little sins that we commit, respectable sins that we commit, acceptable sins that we commit have great and grievous consequences, not just for us, but for those we love. And the trajectory of sin, the course that sin takes is not up, it is down. Friends, if you're not dealing with your sin right now, if you're not dealing with your sin, If you're not confessing your sin, admitting your sin, asking forgiveness for your sin, seeking to mortify your sin, walking in the Spirit, not gratifying the desires of your flesh, repenting from sin, if you are not doing that, you you are not just keeping status quo. You are not just in neutral. You are in reverse. You are going downhill. It's a train wreck. It's off the tracks. It's getting worse. And the great lie of the enemy is to make us think that it's fine. It's no big deal. No one's getting hurt by me. Read Genesis chapter 19. Because I'm sure that thought crossed Lot's mind many, many times. 
The end of sin, friends, is death. Physical death, for one. Okay, you all have bodies and souls. You're a body and you're a soul. You're not just a body. You're not just a soul. You're a body and you're a soul. Had Adam and Eve never sinned, we have reason to believe their bodies would have remained imperishable. But they sinned. And part of the consequence of sin was the penalty of death. And the bodies started to corrode. You all know this is true. Our physical bodies don't get better. Our physical bodies get worse. And because of sin, there will come a day where your body and your soul are separated. And that happens when your heart stops beating. When you go brain dead. When the body that God has given you stops working. And your body will return to the dust. It's physical death. And it happens because of sin. There's also spiritual death the Bible talks about. There's also spiritual death. There's something worse than fearing the guy who can kill your body and it's the one who can send your soul to hell. And spiritual death means that after there's another death that is waiting for those who do not love God and who do not honor God and do not obey God, and that's the soul that's separated from the body and the soul does not go to paradise. The soul goes to a place of waiting, awaiting the judgment of Jesus Christ where all those who do not glorify, honor, and love and serve Him will be eternally alienated from God. That's the second death. And it's because of sin. There is also a death that Scripture talks about, and it's a way that you can be alive and dead inside. And if you're not dealing with your sin, you are dead inside. Paul talks to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, and he says, listen, the widow who is just after pleasure, she's dead while she's still alive. The father of the prodigal son describes his son as being dead when he was away and unrepentant and alive when he's back. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our transgressions. It's the kind of deadness where you can be alive and everything can look just fine and you can say it's just fine. But it's the kind of deadness that leads to you being a homeless dad who's getting drunk with and sleeping with his daughters. And it's failing to recognize that the course of sin is downward. And it's failing to recognize the high calling we have on us as children of God to obey our dad and to love him and serve him and to do in this world what he calls us to do in this world. Not what we want, but what he wants. So we've got to work through this passage. I said at first service, I'll say it again. I'm really not looking forward to it. But looking forward to what God can teach us through it. So let's pray. And we'll get into Genesis chapter 19. Father in heaven, thank you for your word that is our light. God, you say it in your word. It is true. We're on a path. We're on a journey. It's, it's dark. We do not see well. We stumble. We we're trying to figure things out. We're trying to find meaning. We're trying to find hope. We're trying to find purpose. We're trying to find answers. We, but it's dark, God. And sometimes you know your enemy is an imposter. He gives us what we think is light. We buy it. We follow. We eat it up so often. Only to learn that in the end, it's a way that just led to death. Oh God, please awaken us now. Amen. Before then, 
not a fake light, but the real light that is your word would be a lamp to our feet and you would help us to see reality. Help us to see and know what really is the truth about ourselves, the truth about this world, the truth about your enemy and the truth about you, our one true God and the hope that we have because of your one true son, Jesus Christ, and the awakening you provide through your one true Holy Spirit. So get us closer to you. Sanctify us, help us, lead us through your word. We, we ask, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. If you have your Bible, please open it to Genesis chapter 19. And beginning in verse 30, one verse at a time here. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. So the first question that's answered here is where does Lot live? Where is he living right now? He lives in a, he's living in a cave with his two daughters uh, up in the hills behind this community, this city of, of Zor. And it's been, uh, it's been a journey for, for Lot to get to this point. Okay, this is the, the downward okay, course of sin. Uh, there was a, a point where Lot was not broke and homeless like he is now. There was a point where he was uh, doing well. Doing well physically, doing well emotionally, maybe even well spiritually. He was living with Abraham. That's where he started. Uh, he's Abraham's nephew. Remember, he and Abraham came into this land and uh, God blessed both of them. Blessed Abraham and he blessed Lot. Gave him lots of possessions, gave him wealth. Uh, their families grew. And then, then here they are and they're expanding so quickly that Abraham is, is wise because he, he looks and sees that they've got so much that the their employees, those who their servants who are working for them, are squabbling over the available resources in this land. And so Abraham goes to Lot and says, listen, I think we need to go our separate ways lest we become bitter enemies here. Um, and I'll give you first dibs. You pick which way you want to go. So Abraham starts with, uh, Lot starts with Abraham in, in a good place and and then everything starts to go downhill when Lot leaves Abraham and pitches his tent near Sodom. So Lot looks at Sodom, he looks in both directions and says, well, this place is really wicked, I've heard, and no one loves God there, and it's, it's, it's a terrible place, but it's the land of opportunity. And I can be successful there, and I can gain a reputation there, and I can get a lot of money there, and I can have a nice house there. And so he, he pitches his tent near Sodom, Genesis 13 tells us. But then he moves into Sodom. So he goes from leaving Abraham to being n- near Sodom to then he moves in Sodom, and then he embraces Sodom. So it's not just Sodom that gets into, it's not just Lot that gets into Sodom. Sodom gets into Lot. And he embraces the culture there and he becomes like the culture. He embraces it to the point where he's one of them. He has not had a positive impact or effect on the city with the, the word of God. He's had zero impact. Zero impact. Rather, the world has had great impact on him. This is not the way it's supposed to be. The culture is not to influence the church. The church is to influence the culture. 
But we live in a society very similar where all too often it is the winds of culture that direct the church rather than the winds of the church directing the culture. But this is exactly what Lot did. So he leaves his family of faith. He moves into Sodom. He embraces Sodom. He finds a wife in Sodom and he has two little girls. Things get really bad as we read last week. Things get really bad in this town, but God is gracious to Lot. God is gracious to Lot. Remember, Lot is not righteous, as we can see, because of anything good in him. He's righteous because God loves him. God loves him. He's not justified by what he does. Clearly, he's justified by God. God loves Lot, and so God sends two angels to rescue him out of the city. He says, listen, the city is bad. I'm fumigating the whole place. Nothing will be left. I'm not going to leave anything living. I'm going to destroy every human being, because if you just leave one... Okay, in a hundred years, you'll have another Sodom on your hands. So I'm going to wipe out the entire city. I'm going to destroy the earth underneath it. I'm going to scorch it. Nothing will ever live here again. Today, it's probably under the Dead Sea. But God is gracious to Lot and says, round up your family, okay, and get them with you and, and get out of here because the city's getting wiped out. And so on their way out of town, they're running and they're fleeing. And you're thinking maybe this is a turning point for Lot. Okay, maybe the downward spiral is going to stop because the angels tell him, listen, head for the hills. And they're probably pointing in the direction of Mamre, where Abraham is. Go, listen, you've screwed up. You never should have come here in the first place. Okay, but now we're rescuing you. Now go back to your church. Go back to your family. Go back to your community of faith. Go back to Father Abraham. Get back where you need to be. But Lot says no. And instead he heads east. He goes for a city, and then for reasons we don't know, he leaves the city, and now he's in a cave. Now, see what Lot is doing here geographically. He's going farther and farther east. Rather than face his sin, rather than humble himself, rather than go back to Abraham, get down on his knees, beg for forgiveness, set his way right, he's moving farther and farther east. He's quite literally, physically, he's running from God and his people rather than turning to God and to his people. The course of sin is downhill. At one point, Lot was blessed. He was spiritually blessed. He was materially blessed. He was living with Abraham, the father of our faith. And now where is he? His wife is dead. He's broke. He's homeless. It has not gone well. The course of sin is always downhill. And it gets worse, right? Verse 31 and 32. Here's a conversation between his two girls, his two daughters. And in verse 31, they, they, they state a problem. And in verse 32, they decide on a solution. So what is the problem in their eyes and what is the solution? First, the problem, verse 31. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. So listen to what his oldest daughter is saying. His oldest daughter is saying, our husbands are dead, right? 
Husbands are dead. Two husbands are, are back in Sodom. They were consumed by the judgment fire of God. So these two girls look at each other, and this is the problem in their eyes. Our husbands are dead, and, and there are no men around here, so we cannot have sex like everyone else does. That's the problem in their eyes. They are not interested in marriage. They are not interested in a family. What does it say? Verse 31. Our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. So we don't get to do what everyone else does. Okay, remember, these are sodomite girls. These are girls who were raised in Sodom, a sexually perverse city. And so the big problem in their eyes as they're homeless in this cave is that there's no men here for us to have sex with. That's what they're interested in. And, and we'll see, consequently, children. We want to have sex. We want to have children. But it's just us and our dad. Our husbands are dead. And we're up here in the hills. And there's no men around. Their shocking solution to this problem in verse 32. Their shocking solution. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So the two girls conspire and said, Let's get daddy drunk so that we get to have sex with him and we get to have kids. And so, so he can father his grandchildren. That's their solution. These are wicked girls. These are perverse girls. These are sodomite girls. They've got warped minds. Now, they're in this position because they do not know the Lord and they do not love the Lord. That is the that is the seedbed of this sin that we're reading about here. The big problem underneath all that, that the big problem is not that this is what they want to do. The problem is they don't know God. They don't know the Lord. They don't love the Lord. They don't know what His Word says. They don't know what, what He teaches. They don't know what Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 says. They don't understand what sexuality is. They don't understand where, 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 where sex is, is meant to be. They don't understand for this reason. A father will leave his, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. They have not been raised well. They have not been taught well. And so they follow through with this. Verse 33 through 36. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. 
he's getting drunk with his daughters. He's getting drunk with his daughters. He's getting drunk and passing out with his girls. He's getting so wasted that his daughters have sex with him and he doesn't even know it. This is wicked sin. Some commentators actually say it's not his fault he was drunk. He was taken advantage of. Poor Lot. He's the victim here. right? He's been manipulated by his daughters. Now, that's true. He has been manipulated by his daughters. He has been deceived by his daughters. But is he really not responsible? So let's, just, let's back up for a minute. Let's back up and, and figure out how did they get into this situation? What has taken place before that? Well, first, he decided to move his family into Sodom. That was mistake number one. He pitched his tent near Sodom. Oh, I could be successful there, but he didn't count the cost. He didn't count the cost, so he raised his family in Sodom. He walks away from his faith community. He walks away from his church and he enters into the town of Sodom. He marries a non-believer there. He marries a pagan woman from Sodom. He gets caught up in the love of this world. He abdicates his spiritual responsibilities. To lead his wife, to lead his girls, clearly none of them have been led well. He abdicates all spiritual responsibility. He gives his, what do we read about? He gives his daughters to be married to two perverts from Sodom. We read about that last week. He gives them over to be married to two perverts who live in the city of Sodom. Then he offers his daughters up to be gang raped by a homosexual mob outside his front door. This is Father Lot. This is a dad and his daughters. And then when they're fleeing the city and the angels say you should really get back to Abraham, he moves further east, running away from God. And now he's getting drunk with his girls in a cave. Who is responsible here? Lot is responsible. Lot is responsible. There's a main point here. Not the main point, but there is a main point here in the text. I've said before, but now to drill in on the course of sin is downhill. Lot is reaping what he has sown. Lot is reaping what he has sown. In other words, he has he has sown this. This problem didn't come out of nowhere. He has been working at this for his, the entire life of his daughters. He's been working at getting them into this mess. You, 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 can't, you can't plant right, blackberry bushes in the ground and then be surprised when all these thorns come up. And this is what he's done. 
He has not taken care of the soil. He has not tended the soil. He has not planted wisely. He has not nurtured it. He has not cultivated it. And now this is the result. Hosea 8, 7. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Lot has gone on the the James 1.14 pilgrimage. James 1.14 and 15 says this, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And this is the downward course that Lot has been on because of his sin. And instead of dealing with any of his sin, he has just piled on more sin. This is how James 14, James, 4, James lays it out for us in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He says, listen, this is, this is the course of sin in your life. This is how it works out. Desire, temptation, sin, death. It's really simple. And we have all kinds of fancy ways of, you know, trying to change that. But the Bible teaches this is how it goes. It goes desire, temptation, sin, and death. First, there's desire. Every single one of you, Christian or not, you have sinful desires. You have a sinful nature. The Bible calls it your flesh. It means that you desire things you ought not to desire and you want to do things you ought not to do. And you come up against this every day of your life. That's a sinful desire. We inherited it from Adam and Eve. And every single one of you has it. Now, the enemy knows that you have it. And what he wants you to do is to gratify those desires of your flesh. And so what does he bring along? God does not tempt anyone, James says, because there's nothing wicked or evil in God to tempt you. But what Satan does is he dangles carrots in front of you. Knowing your sinful desires, he presents opportunity. And this is what temptation is. Here's an opportunity for you to be greedy, for you to be angry, for sexual misconduct, to displease the Lord. Here's opportunities that Satan will give you, and he'll provide these temptations. Now, here's where the struggle is for the Christian. It is between temptation and sin. Now, I want to be really clear on this. And the reason we want to be so clear on this is because we see in Genesis 19, God is saying, wake up. This is where sin goes. It goes to death. It goes to you being homeless and having sex with your daughters. This is the course of sin. And if you don't deal with it, this is where you're headed. He's shaking us by the collar and saying, take your sin seriously. The struggle for a Christian is not the struggle in sin. The struggle is between temptation and sin. And it's resisting the temptation and resisting the enemy and not sinning. It's a struggle not to sin. There is massive misunderstanding amongst Christians today with this. I've had so many young Christian guys come to me and tell me I am struggling with pornography. I'm struggling with pornography. I'm struggling with masturbation. I'm struggling here. Say, well, tell me what you mean by that. I mean that every few days, every few weeks, I'm looking at pornography. You are not struggling. You are failing. You are giving up. You are pinned down. You are tapping out. That is not struggling. 
Struggling is resisting the temptation. Struggling is the hard battle to not sin, not the hard battle of sinning. If you are repeatedly going back to the same sin over and over and over and over again, friends, you are not struggling. You are losing. And you need to hear this word from Genesis 19 that says, wake up and deal with your sin. I don't care if it's every man's battle. It needs to stop being your loss now. We just got to get this. We take it so lightly. We find some kind of sick comfort in knowing that other guys struggle this way. This is surely how it started for Lot. This is surely how it started for Lot. Man, if you're here today, I really do want to speak to this. Man, if you're here today, and this is your issue, and this is your sin, and for the majority of you men, in my experience, it is. You need to get a handle on it right now. Right now. It is unacceptable. It is not permissible. And you are playing with fire. You need to get a handle on it right now. You think it's isolated to yourself and it's not. It's going to cost you and it's going to cost your family. You say, I'm not even married. It's going to cost your wife and it's going to cost your daughters. It's already costing many of you. It's why many of you young men, you can't even have normal relationships with girls in the church because you've just ingrained in your mind that every woman is a sexual object. You filled it with so much garbage that you can't just have a normal relationship. The girls know this. The men are either ignoring me or they're in serious pursuit of me. What about just being their brother in Christ? And we're in a culture where men do not know how to do that because they have ingrained in their minds that women are sexual objects. It's why men and dads are sweet to their daughters and show affection to their daughters until their their daughters start to develop physically. And then because they've ingrained in their minds that girls are sexual objects, they stop talking to their daughters. And they stop showing affection to their daughters. And they stop loving their daughters. And they begin abdicating the responsibility of their daughters. Because they've just ingrained it in their minds. Man, you have to deal with this now. You can walk over here into our nursery and you can see all these precious little girls. And you can know that you're looking at these little girls. Because the women you're watching have daddies. And they have a heavenly father. Who is furious, furious at what you indulge. It needs to be handled right now. The point here, the course of sin is downhill. Lot has not, Lot has not raised his daughters well. Lot has not raised his daughters well. He got the most serious wake-up call I've ever read of in Scripture. And he's non-responsive at this point. His town was consumed with fire. That's a wake-up call. 
you're getting rescued out of town, and you turn around, and it's getting, you see a fireball coming down and consuming your home. That's, that's, hello, wake up, deal with your sin. Does he deal with his sin? He is totally non-responsive. He continues on the course he has been on, not dealing with his sin. Here are some questions that Lot should have asked. Let me walk through these. How did Lot get to this point? He has not been a godly father. I want to speak to dads. I want to speak to dads with daughters specifically, but I want to speak to all men. I want to speak to young men who aren't even married yet. These are some of the questions that Lot should have asked. And these are questions that every man should ask. Who is my God? Who will I marry? Where will I live? What will I teach my children? What kind of example will I set? Who will my daughters marry? I would venture to say that Lot failed at every single one of those. He did not answer any of those questions well. Question number one, who will be your God? This is foundational. Listen, we're not, we're not talking just about behavior here. Okay, we're talking about loving God. God has been so good. God has been so gracious to us. He owns us. He made us. He knit us together in our mother's womb. He's provided us with gracious day after gracious day, with gracious breath after gracious breath. We must honor and obey him. So the question is, is he a God? Is he your God? Is he the God? It's not, is God on the shelf with all the other gods you have? And you pull him out when you need him and when you want him, but he's right next to money and he's right next to sex and he's right next to respect and and all these other gods you have. It means that God is all-consuming. Who will be your God? This is foundational because if God is your God, then you're very interested in his word. And you're very interested in his ways. And your desire is to please and honor him. This is what a Christian does. Now, I guess Lot called himself a Christian. But he sure wouldn't be a member in this church. There is no fruit. Do we just say with our tongue that he is my God? Or do we live as if he is our God? So, men, who will be your God? Question two, who will you marry? Obviously, specifically for those of you who are young men who are not married yet, you need to ask this question. Who will you marry? It's not just, it's not just, it, it shouldn't be as simple as, uh, I'm going to marry the girl who is attractive and we seem compatible Physically, emotionally, sexually, um, and she's attractive. (laughs) And she's attractive. And things seem to be going well. That's about the thought that goes into it for most men today. Well, who who did Lot marry? He married an attractive girl from Sodom. He married a hot girl from Sodom. Where is his wife now? She's dead. Do you know why she's dead? Because she didn't love God. When she's getting dragged out of the city that God is about to judge, 
the, the city, right, where the, 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 the gang rape was about to take place, she's looking back with affection. She loves this city. Her friends are in this city. She wants to stay in this city. See, I know there's some problems there, but there, there's good people there in Sodom. This is her perspective. And God specifically said through the angels, I'm getting you out of here and don't look back. Don't even look back. Why would you look back? When I drive down my driveway, I look back. It's because I love my wife and I love my kids and I want to see them again. You don't look back on Sodom like that. You don't look back on sin like that. She looked back. Do you remember what God did? He turned her into a pillar of salt. That was God's way of saying, don't do that. That's a a message loud and clear that God gives. Lot, don't do that. I don't know, look back. Kids, don't look back. Don't look back. There's nothing good there. There's nothing good there. Lot didn't think about this. Man, who are you going to marry? You should marry a woman who loves the Lord. Amen. You should marry a woman who loves the Lord. And you know what? If you have daughters, man, they're going to turn out just like, just like their mom. Amen. I'm filled, filled with joy when I look at my daughter Avery and, and imagine her growing up and being tender like her mom and strong like her mom. And she's going to be loyal. And she's going to cook like it's no one's business and bake bake cookies and cakes and her husband is going to be so so happy whoever you marry if you have daughters this is a preview of coming attractions you consider this psalm 3130 charm is deceitful and beauty is in vain but a woman who fears the lord is to be praised there's only one kind of woman in the world that gets more and more beautiful. It's a godly woman. Amen. Every other woman gets less and less beautiful. Why? Because beauty is fleeting. Right? You know this. I know this. I don't, I'm only 36 and I'm already looking in the mirror going, I don't look like I did 10 years ago. You know this. You know that your body is fleeting. And so there are ways where in 50 years, your body is not going to be as physically attractive as it is now. Here's what the deal is with a godly woman. With a godly woman. It doesn't matter what she looks like physically in 50 years. If she's a godly woman, she's more beautiful. She's more beautiful because she's become more like God. She's become more godly. She's become more like Jesus. She's being conformed into his image. This is why you can look and see. some of you know, some of you know, some of these older women who've been walking with Jesus just forever. And it doesn't matter what you're looking at physically, there's a beauty that just radiates, right? There's just a beauty that radiates from them. What's the deal there? She's been walking with the Lord. She's been walking with the Lord. And so the godly woman, while physical beauty may diminish it may disappear she is actually becoming more and more beautiful every day every day so men that's who you want to marry that's who you want to marry you want to marry a godly woman is she a christian man yeah well she goes to church 
so do a lot of non-Christians. <laughs> she a Christian? Well, she prays. What, what, what planet are you on right now? Does she love the Lord? Does she know the gospel? Does she believe the gospel? What is her theology? What are her views of manhood and womanhood, of marriage and family? These are the kinds of questions to ask. Who will you marry? The next question, where will you live? Where will you live? Where did Lot live? Sodom. Don't pitch your tent near Sodom. Right, we've learned this lesson reading through the Scripture. Where will you live? Will you keep your family safe? Physically? Spiritually? Will there be a church that is close by where you live? Will there be a community of faith where you can be in fellowship and you can be challenged and you could be encouraged? Will you give your family what they need? Or will you, or will you put your family in harm's way saying things like, well, I'm gonna let go and let God. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move my, I'm gonna move my family into the ghetto, but you know what? The Lord is our shield. Or you start taking verses out of context. Well, God's in control and God's sovereign and God will provide. Yes, God will provide through you and God will protect through you. So we need to think about these things. I want my family to be safe spiritually. I want them to be safe physically. There may be times where that is just totally outside of my control, but most of the time it is inside the parameters that God has given to me and I need to work for it and think through, where is my family going to live? Lot did not think about this. Well, I could be successful there. I'm sure he had a sweet house in Sodom. I'm sure it was a sweet house. It was on acreage. He had the swimming pool, maybe nine holes in the back. I'm sure it was very nice. They had all the parties over at their house. And now where's his house? It's smoke. It's smoke. What was the cost, Lot? Cost was everything for him. Next question, what will you teach your children? What will you teach your children? What did Lot teach his girls? Nothing. Nothing. He didn't teach his girls anything. How did his little girls learn how to be women? They learned how to be women from Sodom. Their boyfriends were no help. The community was no help. Their teachers were no help. The coaches were no help. Nobody was any help. And did Lot pick up the slack? Did he employ the right people? Did he teach the right truths? Did he open the word? Did he talk about the Lord? He did not. He completely abdicated his responsibility to his girls. He handed them over to the city. Listen, dads, if you have daughters, there are many willing teachers. And they're going to teach your girls. And they're going to teach them how to be women. And you must not teach them the world's ways. You must teach them God's ways that they would learn how to be godly women. 
And if as dads we do not teach our children and we do not answer our children's questions, then our children will go get educated somewhere else. And they will get their questions answered somewhere else. So we must answer the questions. And we must provide the instruction. And we must provide the teaching. What will you teach your children? Men, do you have a plan for this? Do you have a plan of how you will teach your children and when you will teach your children and why you're teaching your children? Two more questions. Next one. What kind of example will you set? What kind of example will you set? Look at the lot, the example that Lot sets for his girls. Married a non-believer, ditched his family of faith, handed his daughters over to rapists, gets drunk with them. He does not respect his daughters sexually. He's a perverted man who raises perverted girls. This is who Lot is. Be the kind of man. The example that you dad should set for your girls is to be the kind of man that you would want your daughters to marry. Be the kind of man you would want your daughters to marry. And set that example for them. I was so shocked at, at some of the things that I saw this week while we were on vacation. And dads who were not taking responsibility for their daughters, who were not loving and leading their daughters, and who were not being good examples for their daughters. I must have seen dozens, dozens of dads, dozens of dads on the beach with their 12, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old daughters in little tiny string bikinis. Playing with them, wrestling with them in the sand, laying out next to them on the beach. This is sickening. Yeah, yeah. Dads, do you not know what you're teaching your daughters? Do you know what do you not know what you're teaching other men about your daughters? It's just a step below bringing the daughters outside the door and handing them over. It's in here she is. Look at the goods here. Feast your eyes on this. Dad, you're to protect her. Amen. You're to protect her. You're to shield her. You're to stand between her and harm's way. You're to stand between her and the gawking of other men. And you're to teach her that she is not a sexual object, that she is an image bearer of God to be treated with all dignity and all respect and to be loved and protected and preserved. And this is your role as a daddy. And the final question, it may sound archaic today, but who will your daughters marry? Who will your daughters marry? Because you should have a say in that, dads. I've got this all planned out. I mean, Avery's a year and a half, and we're good. We've got a plan. My wife and I, I guarantee you, we're on the same page. Now, I, might, I may not tell Avery exactly who she's going to marry, but I'm sure going to tell her who she's not going to marry. Amen. We're going to guard her. We're going to keep her. We're going to protect her. Our guard is up, and no one is getting to Avery without getting through Dad or getting through her four brothers who are all ready. You saw Blaze. He came with the sword today. He's like, just try it, buddy. Just try it. I'm like, I'm like giving the evil eye to three-year-old boys on the beach in Tahoe this last week. Like, what are you, you get away from my girl. Where's your father? We need to have a talk. 
This is this is supposed to be uh, symbolized in the wedding ceremony when the father gives away his bride. When the father gives away his bride. But here's what's really sad. In my experience doing a lot of weddings, that is typically just a traditional formality with zero meaning. Zero meaning. I'll tell you what, when I give my daughter away someday, I'll be giving her away. And she will not be given away before that. But most dads gave their daughters away a long time ago. She's her own girl and she's independent. She thinks for herself and she's making her own decisions. And who am I to question or who am I to barge in? You're her father. You're her father. There are to be two men in her life and only two men. And it is her father and her husband. And that's it. So Avery is going to be, she's going to be my girl. And she will always be my girl. But when she gets married, she's still going to be my girl. And, and for now, I'm the only man in her life. And I will stay the only man in her life. And I will be the only man in her life until a man comes along who is worthy to be her husband. And until then, as she grows and understands, I'm going to be telling her this. I'm, I'm the man in your life. It's you and me. And I'm going to love her. And I'm going to provide for her. I'm going to give her everything she needs. I'm going to show affection to her. And I'm going to hug her. And I'm going to kiss her. And I'll do that till she's 40 if I have to. She's mine. It's until... There's no age where I hand her over to the world. So men, ask yourselves, who will your daughters marry? I intend to surround my daughter with godly men. That's why I'm so pleased with the godly families we have here and the godly young men that we have here. And I'm watching. I'm watching. We may just arrange something pretty soon. And now the last two verses, 37 and 38. And perhaps to your surprise, we actually come to the main point of the story in these two verses. So everything up to this point, they are main points, but not the main point. They're good points, but not the main point. And you get the main point right here in verse 37 and 38. You're going to have some, we're going to read about the birth and the naming of these two children. Names are huge in your Bible. A lot of people, you never hear their names right, but then other people, you hear their names, and the names have meaning. And so you get the names of people for a reason, and it's you got to figure it out. Okay, why are, we, why are we learning this about these people? So, verse 37 and 38. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So the older daughter has a child and names him Moab. Now it's sick. The name means from father. She names him Moab. And the younger girl has a son and she names him Ben-Ami. Now, from Moab come a tribe of people called the Moabites, which you may have heard of. And from Ben-Ami come a tribe of people called the Ammonites. And the Moabites and the Ammonites are, in your Bible, 
They are fierce enemies of God's people. The Israelites. So you have here two, two little boys that are born who are going to grow up and become the father of two peoples that are going to become great enemies of God's people, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now, to understand why this is here and why we need to know this, I need to give you a very brief synopsis of the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. Because there's a connection here, Genesis 19, Ruth chapter 4, and Matthew chapter 1. Let me draw it together for you. If, you, if you. if you haven't read the book of Ruth recently, you should read it again. It's a wonderful story. There was a famine in Israel. There was a famine in Israel. And so uh, a believing family leaves Israel and retreats to an unbelieving territory to ride out the famine. Very similar to Lot okay, leaving to go to an unbelieving territory with his family. And so you have a dad named Elimelech and uh, his wife, Naomi. And then instead of two daughters like Lot, they have two sons. So they flee into this unbelieving territory. They, 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 um, they, they settle down there. In fact, the two sons fall in love with two girls and, and get married. So they're, they're rooting themselves down in this unbelieving territory. Uh, so you've got Elimelech, Naomi, their two sons. And then the names of the women that their two sons marry are Ruth and Orpah. Ruth and Orpah. Well, over time, all the men die. All the men die. Dad dies, the two boys die, and so it's just Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. So Naomi says, you know, we never should have left Israel, never should have left God's people. And so she tells her daughters-in-law, I'm going back. I'm going back to my people, and I'm going back to my God. And they start packing up their bags to go with her, and she says, listen, you should stay here. Uh, I don't have any more sons that you can marry. I can't provide what you need. Uh, you should stay here. So Orpah says, all right, I'm out of here. She leaves. And you remember what the scriptures say that Ruth clinged to Naomi. And, and Ruth said, wherever you go, I'm going. Amen. And what else did she say? She said, I love you. What else did she say? And I love your God. So there they go, these two widows, Naomi and Ruth. Looks like a really sad story up until this point. Naomi and Ruth, they head, they head back to Israel. And then Boaz meets Ruth. Now, Boaz is like Jesus. Boaz is like Jesus. He is a godly, godly man. And he takes this girl that some would say had a lot of baggage. Okay, here's this widow. And he loves her. Just falls head over heels. This is the girl I want to marry. He's a good man. He's a hard working man. He's a man who wants to redeem things. He's, he understands God. He loves God. He's obedient. And so he marries Ruth. And her life completely turns around. She's brought into this wonderful family. And they have a son. God blesses them with a child. And at the end of Ruth, we find out the name of this child. His name is Obed. And the end of Ruth tells us that Obed is going to be the daddy of Jesse and Jesse is going to be the daddy of King David. And then we go to Matthew chapter one and Ruth shows up in the genealogy of Jesus, because, of course, down the line from Ruth comes Obed, Jesse, King David. And then down the line from King David comes our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, okay, why is this? Why is this important? Here's why this is important. Ruth 
was a Moabite. Ruth was a Moabite. Ruth was a daughter of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter. Well, what is God screaming? What man means for evil, God means for good. I don't know if there's a more sickening story in the entire Bible. I really don't. And I don't know where you're more hard-pressed to answer the question, what good could possibly come out of this? And God's answer is, Jesus. What? You go to Matthew chapter 1 and look at the lineage of Jesus Christ. There's some unsavory characters. Boaz's mom was who? Rahab the prostitute. And Ruth, so you have Boaz, the daughter, the son of a prostitute, and Ruth, the daughter of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter. And God brings them together for the purpose of generations down, sending his son, Jesus Christ, in the flesh. This is what this means. God is in control. God is in total control. God's hand is behind all things. You are in or you will be in circumstances and situations that you will insist cannot be used for good. And God is saying it will be used for good. Because what man means for evil, God means for good. Romans 8 is true. God is always working for the good of those who love him. What that means for you, whether you deal with your sin or not, God will be glorified. God will be glorified. But the question is, will you be like Lot and not deal with your sin? And and the blessing and the glories going to have to wait a few hundred years. Or will you be like Ruth and Boaz? And will you stop the downward course of sin in your life and deal seriously with your God now? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you've been so good to us. We're amazed that you can take horrible situations and use them for good. It is clear to us that that man means much for evil and there is wickedness and there is darkness and there are evil purposes at work. And God, we need to know and we need to believe that you are in control and that you are working for good. And so we bring to you our impossible prayer requests. And we bring them to you, God, because we know, we know, we believe your word is true. We believe you are faithful. We believe you can do the impossible. We believe you can work miracles. And we believe you do. So make us a people who do not just pretend to love you and obey you and serve you, but make us a people who really do, who hear your word and do what it says. 
who faithfully trusts you, who takes sin seriously, who turn to you and find mercy in you. We pray this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.